Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. And I'm Andrew Coyne, columnist with The Globe and Mail. Inflation, the housing market, health care. As we rang in 2023, the biggest issues of 2022 remain the biggest issues of the new year. What can we expect out of the year ahead? For perspective on the big issues, the C.D. Howe Institute podcast asked Andrew to join us for his insight. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. The Institute started the year with Duncan Munn's call to the country's political class to embrace more realism in public policy. And priority number one was inflation control. Do you get the sense that fiscal authorities understand their contribution to the worst inflationary environment in 40 years? Uh, they may understand it, whether they are prepared to make that a priority or not, I don't know. Uh, obviously, the prior res- primary responsibility for getting inflation back down is on the Bank of Canada. Um, you know, that's the, the only real tool we have. But certainly the, the fiscal authority can back that up. And I think mostly in terms of the credibility. I'm not as concerned about spending contributing to inflation, but it does make it harder. You know, credibility and expectations is so much a part of the game of getting inflation under control. It's one of the biggest potential strengths we have because we're coming off a period of 30 years of low inflation. So there's an optimistic scenario where people are going to be more ready than they were back in the 70s and 80s to believe that the central bank really mean it when they say they're going to get inflation back down. Uh, but they need to have that backstop from the from the fiscal authority looking like they're getting control of their deficits and debts and spending. And we don't see a lot of evidence of that, frankly, from the federal government right now. What do we need to see out of the federal government? Well, we need to see that. We need to see that, that, that there's actual... Um, uh, guardrails or benchmarks or whatever the term they're using these days, they always seem whenever they're in danger of actually, uh, you know, meeting their targets, they invent a new target that makes it easier for them. Uh, and they, it, there's a little game they play every year where um, they make a forecast uh, out for the next three or four years of what spending is going to be like. And every time they do it, it goes up at, you know, a nice moderate one or 2% per year. It looks like they've got spending under control. And no one seems to notice that every time they do a new forecast, they just raise the whole fiscal track another. They just revise the whole forecast up. Uh, and so we wind up with spending increasing at a fairly rapid rate without ever having been projected or, or agreed to it, <laughs> frankly, that it would increase at that rate. Um, so, so there's still, I think, uh, I, I don't think they're yet apprised that this is serious. Um, they always seem to think, well, that's a, a problem for another day. The other thing they could be doing that they seem to have got a little bit of religion on in the last little while that the the federal government can be doing to contribute to the bank's job is raising productivity, raising our our mediocre annual rate of productivity growth. That's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, we have an aging population with uh, very high projected health costs. They're high now, but they're going to get even higher as, as time goes on and the population continues to age. And the only way we're going to be able to afford that is if we have permanently higher growth in productivity, growth in incomes, growth in revenues to be able to to pay for those costs. But it's also important in terms of inflation, again, in terms of helping smooth the path back to to lower inflation. If inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, well, one part of it is getting the money part down, but the other part is raising the the productive capacity of the economy so that the the goods and money equation are back back more in equilibrium. So there's more they, much more they can be doing on that. We've heard them lately talking about the problem that Canada has with productivity, which is progress. Uh, we haven't seen yet serious policies to address that. 
often it's it's seen the the best solution to uh, that problem of productivity is just to shovel more money at it, which is a very different um, solution to the inflation problem than shoveling money into the public's pocket, which at the end of the day ends up doing more damage than good. Yeah, if, if all I mean, we've seen this, for example, on the housing side. Uh, if if your concern is for high and rising housing prices, uh, demand side solutions where you put more money in the hands of new first time homeowners uh, isn't really going to help that very much. Um, you know, on the productivity side, yeah, the the, the 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 way that a lot of people in Ottawa think about productivity is you kind of shovel a lot of R and D in at one end. Uh, and, 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 and so you come up with new and more ways to, to subsidize research and development. And out at the other end will pop more productivity. It's, it's just sort of almost like a mechanistic equation. Um, and that's not actually how it works. If it did work that way, then the several hundred productivity in R&D programs that we have would already have produced that. You know, what all of the voluminous literature on productivity, you know, if there's a constant theme that runs through all of it, it's, Competition is the thing that really drives productivity. It's, it's the fear that your opponent, your, your rivals are going to eat your lunch. And there's still much more we can doing, be doing in this country on that front, particularly in these large sectors that we've in various ways protected from foreign competition or foreign investment, which is often the only way that we really get foreign competition in a serious way here. So these three big sectors in particular, the financial services of, of, of telecoms, and of transportation uh, still remain areas that, as we've seen, where we're paying the highest prices in each of those sectors, either the highest or among the highest uh, fees and prices in the world. Um, there's a lot more that can be done there to, to drive competition and to drive the productivity gains that then translate into lower prices. And among the most regulated industries in the country as well, do you have any specific thoughts on, on how we can sort of cut back on that red tape and some of the other issues that would help fuel the uh, the kind of environment we need to see to ensure that there is greater productivity because there is greater fear of your lunch being eaten? Yeah, well, I mean, it starts by putting the consumer first, which ought to be axiomatic. You would think people would understand that the reason we put planes in the air, you know, is not to give pilots something to do. Uh, it's to get passengers from point A to point B as cheaply and quickly and efficiently as we possibly can, especially in a country as vast as this. Uh, but, you know, the consumer always seems to come second place, frankly, to the industry. There's a large literature on that as well about how regulation too often winds up regulating in the interests of the regulated. And you can see how it happens that if a company goes bust because they couldn't hack it in the marketplace, they couldn't compete Everyone kind of understands that if a company were ever to go bust because the government regulated it into bankruptcy, people would be up in arms. So what happens? It means that regulation is always arranged so that nobody ever goes bust. Uh, so, you know, we and it intersects with the other types of regulation. There were attempts made, if you may recall, a few years ago to get one of the major U.S. wireless carriers to come into Canada. I forget whether I think it was Verizon or one of them. And it, in the end, it kind of balked. And I, my understanding, my recollection is that part of it was we have all these intricate forms of cross-subsidy built into our wireless system where, we're, you know, the city folk are cross-subsidizing rural folk and who knows what else. And they took a look at it and said, we don't want to get into that game. Uh, so if we had uh, less of that, if we, if you know, when we, this is something that bedevils a lot of our regulatory policy is we're always trying to cross-subsidize things. Uh, because we think that somehow if we if we cross subsidizing it doesn't count as a subsidy 
It's sort of that's kind of vaguely market work because we're just making some consumers pay for other consumers. And it's never good policy. It's inefficient. It's unfair. It's inequitable. If you want to subsidize somebody, it's always better. Just do it directly. So it's transparent. Everybody knows who's paying and who's getting. Uh, and that's always better policy than these kind of um, elaborate uh, ring arounds that are meant to disguise what it is we're doing. So are you confident that on the demand side of the equation when it comes to inflation that 2023 will be the year that we sort of find that religion on how to address this issue without throwing more money at the problem? Uh, Yes and no. So we're already seeing uh, inflation coming down uh, uh, quite smartly. It's it's down on a sort of a three-month average basis. It's down to around 4% now. Uh, and, and, And so, you know, it's working. The tough part, I think, is going to be getting from four percent to two percent. Um, that there, you're 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 going to get people saying, I think you're already hearing some people saying, "Oh, is it worth getting that last little bit out? Uh, um, you know, is, are, are the costs worth the benefits?" And there'll be, I predict, an argument about that. I think the historical record shows it absolutely is uh, worthwhile because it's only when you get down. I frankly, I've always felt that two percent ought to be the ceiling rather than the midpoint of of the target range. And there's large arguments about that, but you know, I can live with 2%. Uh, but the main thing is you want to get it down to a point where nobody's thinking about it, uh, where it's not only low, but stable. One of the consequences, the higher inflation rates, the more variable it gets. And the more variable it, get, it gets, um, the more dislocation and, and misallocation of investment happens, but also the more um, strike actions you have happen. Because one of the things when nobody is certain or, or agreed on what the inflation rate is, that makes more room for disagreement among management and labor uh, about, you know, what, what, what they expect inflation to be. And also when inflation is higher and wage rates are, are climbing generally, no one wants to be the last one up, left. You know, no one wants to be playing catch up. So the lower you can get inflation, um, the less the, all of those factors become, the more that people can trust that Prices mean what they mean, that, that if you see a price going up, it's because there's more demand for that product and not just because prices are going up generally. Uh, it, they just become much more reliable indicator. And given that everything in our economy is guided by prices, uh, that really has to be job one, is, is having a reliable set of price signals that, that are useful and accurate um, indicators to people about what kinds of investments they should be making and where they should be working, et cetera. To your point about the rate of inflation coming down on a three-month uh, rolling average, uh, Steve Ambler and Jeremy Cronick ended 2022 calling on the Bank of Canada to pause the interest rate escalator. Considering it can be 18 months to two years before the impact of a rate increase is truly felt on an economy, what's your call on the impact 2022's rate hikes will have on 2023? Oh, gosh, I, I don't know if I could say that with any uh, any certainty at all. I'm not good at predictions, and, and this, this would be above my pay grade, I would just say, um, you're absolutely right that that um, uh, monetary policy works with long and variable legs. Uh, I think it was John Crow compared it to, to driving with a, you know, looking in the rearview mirror, I think in a snowstorm, you know. Uh, um, so it is, uh, it is extremely difficult. I'm sure the bank is uh, cautious and, and concerned about not overdoing it. My guess, my general historic fear and instinct would be uh, um, the, the worst problems have come when banks didn't do enough than when they did too much. Uh, um, you know, if you, if you overdo it, then you, yeah, you have a, you have a, a short period of, of worse economic uh, uh, um, performance than you would like. If you underdo it, then you have years of inflation. 
Uh, and that was certainly the lesson of the 70s and 80s was once it gets baked in, once people really start to expect inflation, then it becomes very costly to bring inflation down. And because it's costly to bring inflation down, people figure, well, then the authorities will be afraid of bringing it down. So it just bakes in the expectations all the more. So it's a kind of a deterrence game. Uh, um, I've, you know, I've often said half jokingly that what you need in a central banker is somebody who everyone thinks is a bastard, uh, you know, who would who would laughingly bring in a recession and not care. Uh, because as horrible as that sounds, if, if people think that that's what the central bankers like, they're they're much more likely to believe them when they say they're going to get inflation down. And one of the problems, it's only a small part of this, but one of the problems I think feeding into this was in the run up before the inflation we've seen for a couple of years there, you had both the government and the central bank talking as if, well, we've got other concerns than just inflation. We, we're a modern central bank and we're interested in things like you know, the climate change and inclusive growth. And those are all wonderful things. Don't get me wrong. It's important for somebody to be concerned about that. But if the central bank uh, lets it be known that it has any concern other than getting inflation low and stable, then there will be costs and consequences. That messing around with the mandate that they did when they negotiated, which I think was mostly the government's instigation, ultimately, you know, the the mandate stayed more or less the same, but there was this weird and ambiguous language thrown in there that wasn't helpful. And what's notable is, if you listen to what's coming out of, of Tiff Macklin's mouth and other, others at the central bank these days, it's, we're getting inflation down. That's the only thing we're concerned about. They're, they've gotten very um, Martinet-like about it, uh, and, and rightly so. So I think there's a lesson there of uh, you can never really... Um, let up on the idea that that the, the the sole contribution that a central bank can make, and it's such an important one to an economy, is is price stability, is, is a reliable uh, monetary standard. Well, so then let me expand upon your earlier comment. Is Tiff Macklem enough of a bastard? <laughs> uh, I think I think we're seeing that now. I think that's the t that's what's being tested right now. Uh, and and the optimistic scenario, as I say, is that whether because of his statements or because we are in this unique situation, if I can put it that way, of having inflation after 30 years of low and stable inflation, because we've never really had 30 years of low and stable inflation before, right? This is, we've only had a central bank since 1935. And for the first couple of decades, it had to go through a depression and a world war. So things were a bit unstable. And then in the post-war period, we had sort of a few years of relative stability. And then in the 60s, it started to accelerate and it accelerated for a long time. So getting inflation down and keeping it there for 30 years was a major achievement and a major departure. And then having inflation after that is this new thing. So he's benefiting, I think, from that. Uh, um, but I think we've seen if, if, uh, if, uh, your friends at the Institute are worried that, that he's going to overdo it, I think you've seen that he is projecting both in what he's saying and in the policies he's adopting, uh, that he definitely intends to get inflation back down. And I think you, there can be some fault attached to the bank for being too slow. And I think he's acknowledged this for being too slow to recognize that inflation had kind of reared its head ag again, gotten up off the mat, uh, I don't think it was necessarily the cause of that, but once once it has happened, once you've had because we again we've come through this extraordinary period with both shutting down an entire economy and then opening it up again, and then a war in Ukraine and all the impacts that had on on commodity prices, 
uh, you know, that it's plausible to think that that was the main instigator in getting prices back off off the map. But once that's happening, once people start to internalize that into their expectations, it really does fall to the central bank to knock it back down. So I think he recognizes he was he and the bank were too slow to act against it. Uh, but I, I think you're seeing they certainly are acting against it now. Well, Macklem came out in 2020 to tell us that interest rates would remain low for a long time. That statement is being cited as a reason why about a third of mortgage holders yeah. have a variable rate mortgage today. Um, what are your thoughts on the BOC's role in the state of the housing market in 2023? Well, I certainly think that forward guidance, um, which was in vogue for a while, and I suppose in some quarters still is, this idea of making these kinds of very firm pronouncements about um, particular policy indicators, um, I, I, I don't think is terribly helpful. I think it induces more instability than stability. Uh, I'm a bit old school, but I think maybe old school is coming back in, in, in form in the situation we're in, that they should tell people what their inflation target is. Uh, and that's their main communication with the public, that, that we're going to keep inflation low and we'll do whatever it takes to keep it low. And we'll let you know later what interest rates are going to be. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't think that was helpful. And I think, as you say, I think that probably uh, has contributed. There's a lot of things going on in the housing market. So it's not only a matter of interest rates having been kept so low for so long. But also, as well, I think we is more generally recognized now, we've had a real supply issue. Uh, on the housing market as well. So, um, you know, we have a lot of people coming into our big cities, whether from other parts of the country or from outside the country. Um, that That's manageable as long as the supply can, can, can meet the demand. And we've so wrapped up a lot of the housing market in um, regulation, particularly at the municipal level, that you're now seeing pretty wide consensus on both the right and the left um, that that has to be relaxed, that we cannot have these sort of no-go zones where it's only single-family housing, you know, forever and ever, uh, but make more room for multifamily dwellings and that kind of thing. So it's a combination, I think, of, of uh, bringing uh, interest rates back to, to, to a more normal level. Uh, they're still gonna, probably going to be low by historical standards even after we come out of this, uh, but, but not as low as, as they were for so long, um, but also loosening up on the supply side. Well, then at the risk of, of straying from your, your pay grade again, uh -huh. maybe this is more of the cocktail party question uh, that, that you'll get. Do you see relief this spring in the interest rate cycle for homeowners hit with that one-two punch of, of high interest rates and skyrocketing mortgage payments? Well, I, you know, I'd just be guessing. I, I, again, you've certainly seen uh, an impact on the housing market. I mean, sales are way down. Prices are down, I think, 10, 15 percent, maybe even more in Toronto. Uh, uh, so that there's, you know, we've knocked a lot of the, the froth out of the market already. Um, and it's just going to depend upon the course of inflation. I, you know, that, that if we continue to see progress on the inflation rate, if that, uh, um, three month average that's around 4% now continues to show progress on that, then interest rates are going to start to come down. But I, you know, when or if I, that's, that's again, wave of my pay grade. It's above anybody's pay grade that nobody knows. Right. Um, we're, what, 20 years into the Romano Commission's report that called for more money and more planning to fix what ails healthcare in Canada. We got both, but we learned from the pandemic that neither money nor planning really rescued us. Uh, what does 2023 look like in Canada's hospitals? Uh, a bleak, uh, certainly in the short term. Uh, um, it has certainly put healthcare 
very high on the agenda all of a sudden. It's always somewhere in the mix. Uh, I always like to point out, though, that inflation is an important issue, typically in Canadian elections, but not a decisive issue because people generally look at it and go, yeah, I'm really concerned about healthcare." And they always tell the pollsters that but they also don't believe anybody's got some magic bullet solution. And I think for the most part, that's rightly so. Certainly, we haven't seen much of that. Um, yeah, Romano and the policies that came out of that with the Paul Martin's quote unquote fixed for a generation was a, a, a terrible disappointment and step backward. Um, uh, I don't want to be cynical, but, you know, in the, the, the last time we really had a crunch in the healthcare system was in the early 90s when we were, you know, dealing with our deficits and debts in a very serious way. And it's also the time when there was the most interest in serious reform. Roy Romano, people thought that report was going to be interesting and substantive, and it turned out to be a real damp squib. But there was another report that came out at the same time, or more or less the same time, by, chaired by uh, Michael Kirby, Senator Michael Kirby, a Senate report, that was much more uh, lively and interesting and, and I think, apprised of the problems that were afflicting the system. And so Romano's bet was, uh, you know, I remember the phrase was, let's buy change. We'll put in a lot of money and that will buy change. And in fact, what it did was it bought stasis. It, it put everybody back to sleep. We're now in a period again when uh, the, the healthcare system is in a terrible state, only partly because of the pandemic. That has certainly made everything worse uh, and, and exposed the cracks and the strains in the system. But as many people have pointed out, if this, the system was being run on such a, a tight margin even before the pandemic, the pandemic just simply exposed you know, how, how tight things were. And even, even so, you know, we're spending more than we ever have you know, after inflation, after population growth. Provinces are spending close to 50% of their own source revenues on this one program, and it's only going to get higher as the population ages. So I think people are now coming to realize, uh, uh, you know, that the, we really need to make more fundamental reforms. It doesn't involve throwing out the system. It doesn't involve, um, you know, in my view, doesn't involve charging user fees or, you know, throwing things into private insurance. But it does mean that we've got to import some sort of market mechanisms within the publicly funded system. We've got to make more room for competition within the publicly funded system. Uh, so if, you know, if, if, a, if hospital X can do a tracheotomy for X number of dollars, but the clinic down the road can do it for fewer dollars, then we've got to be prepared to shift some of that business towards, towards the clinic down the road. Uh, um, because, you know, waste and inefficiency in the healthcare system isn't just a matter of, you know, wasting a few dollars. It, there's lives on the line. When, 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 when we have the kinds of waiting lists uh, that we have and wait times before healthcare, you know, we're starting to impinge on people's uh, health and indeed their lives. So I think there's much more of an appetite now uh, for serious reform, but it's always difficult because the system is so uh, enormous and so complex and because there's so many interest groups within the system that are prepared to rise up against any change, whatever, that every politician who has to get elected in the next 18 months um, is very nervous about approaching it. And they'll only do so when you get into the kind of crisis we're in now. Well, to your point, Ontario is expected to open privately operated independent surgical centers to clear the backlog from the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, the doctors are saying this is just going to lead to a brain drain from the healthcare system into the private healthcare system. And we're just going to end up doing more damage than good. Yeah, and that's you have to take seriously these concerns. Healthcare is tricky, and there's all kinds of ways for perverse incentives uh, to creep into it, and you're always having to be monitoring that. So, for example, 
one of the things that everybody agrees on, including me, is you want to move doctors from fee-for-service, uh, so-called, to capitation, where they're paid a, a certain amount for each patient to kind of keep them healthy for the year. And there's all sorts of reasons why that's a good idea, that it changes the incentive from loading people up with care that they may or may not need, but which contributes to doctors' incomes, to trying to economize on care and, and, and you know, keep within a budget. Well, first concern is you want to make sure that when, you, when you're setting up that system that you're not giving people an incentive to under-treat people. But secondly, as we've seen in Ontario, is one of the things where they did bring it in with some doctors in Ontario is people started cutting back on their work effort. They, 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 they got such a healthy, a hefty capitation fee that they started working fewer days and fewer hours. So you always have to be aware of the human animal. You always have to be aware of incentives. Uh, but that just, to me, just means that maximizes the imperative of getting to work on this. And it, there's going to be some trial and error, and there's going to be some things that aren't going to work out as well as we'd like. But the status quo is in such disarray and such such trouble that you've got to be prepared to, to experiment a bit. I think it changes the equation a little bit in terms of federal-provincial relations. You know, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who never really had much difficulty with the idea of conditional federal grants. Some people saw this as this abomination. I thought, well, okay, if, if you don't want to meet the conditions of the grant, you don't have to take the money. But there was a role for the federal government in trying to standardize and, and, and universalize the system across the country. And I think we've been largely successful in that. But that was in the early days of Medicare when, you know, the provinces weren't much poorer and there was much less consensus about what we wanted the healthcare system to do, et cetera. I think in the, in the years to come, I think the emphasis has to shift uh, to giving provinces, uh, A, more flexibility uh, to innovate and experiment and try new things, uh, be, but, but B, to be more accountable to their own public. And so you're starting to, people, to see people argue more and more now. And I see Peter Nicholson, for example, former advisor to Paul Martin, coming out with, with a paper saying, uh, we need to get out of the federal transfer business. We need to, tr to change those cash transfers that the provinces and the federal government fight over every year into a transfer of tax points. So yes, the provinces in the long run are going to need more money. I know they've cried wolf, but you know eventually the wolf does show up uh, because of the aging population. But they need to be accountable for how that money is spent. And they're not accountable now. What happens now is it's just this endless game of finger pointing and recrimination where the provinces blame the feds for not giving them enough money. And the feds say the provinces aren't doing enough with the money we give them. Let's get out of that game. Let's let's transfer them into fiscal trans into, into tax point transfers. So the provinces raise their taxes, the, the feds lower theirs. The provinces have more money, but now everybody knows who's who's accountable and who's to blame uh, if things go wrong. And so the provinces then are accountable to their own citizens and their own taxpayers rather than pretending to be accountable to Ottawa. Yeah, Don Drummond at Queen's University told the podcast that we knew this day was coming 50 years ago, yeah. and it was the easiest public policy issue to predict, yet we basically did nothing about it. Is 2023 the year we do something about it? I think it may be the year that, that some things start to happen, yes. Uh, uh, it is fiendishly difficult. He's absolutely right that we certainly have known there was a calamity coming. That, that was You could predict that with, with certainty, partly because of the demographics, uh, but also because the system, you know, nobody knows what anything costs. This is the thing that Michael Kirby was so good on. I remember him coming to talk to us at the, the National Post where I was working at the time. And he said, you know, we went around and we interviewed you know, hospital administrators, people with, you know, 30 years of experience, three degrees, very knowledgeable, smart people. 
And we said, how much does it cost you to, you know, perform a tracheotomy? And they didn't know. And they didn't know because nobody needed to know. There was no reason to know. The budgeting didn't require it. And until you do put a price on these things, you can't set up effective competition. So uh, getting to know what things cost is absolutely critical. And there's a set of reforms that would help to create those incentives for people to know what things cost and then to, 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 uh, to respond accordingly. I mentioned one of them was moving away from fee-for-service and the other is moving hospitals onto essentially an equivalent of fee-for-service because they would be playing a different role than the doctors in that system. Uh, there's a set of reforms that, that, that people who look at the system, there's a fair degree of consensus, but they don't seem to get done. And getting from A to B that way, that getting the, the right policy to be also the politically possible policy, I think is the real nut that still has to be cracked. As I say, you've got, you've got politicians who they can be as courageous as they like, but you know they're talking about a system that if they get the changes right, will pay dividends years from now, but if they get them wrong, could blow up in their face right now. And that risk aversion situation that the politicians are facing makes it very difficult for them to make these kinds of very substantive and quite detailed reforms. And so one of the things I think, and I, there was a very good paper came out from the CD House Institute, uh, Aki Blomquist, uh, talking about sort of meta reforms, if you will, or what are the things we can do that will make it more possible to make those kinds of detailed reforms? Uh, and he talked about, for example, setting up a parallel public system, not a parallel private system that people often talk about, but a parallel public system where you instituted all these reforms and then you let people decide whether they wanted to opt into that system or stick with the system they already have. And that way you could kind of have kind of a trial run. You'd have a, a working model of what reform would look like without everybody having to commit to it all at once. And that something like those lines might be the kinds of things that make larger reforms more possible. Andrew, to wrap up our time together, uh, when you look ahead to what 2023 looks like in your eyes, give us a sense as to what that looks like. Well, I think we're coming off a year that was so unsettling in so many ways, uh, uh, where so many established norms and, and expectations were upset. We, you know, we thought inflation, you know, inflation had been low for so long. We, you know, we all thought it would stay low for, for, for you know, the duration. Uh, we had a, a war in Europe after decades of relative peace in, on that continent. Uh, you know, we had this, this series of things, and obviously dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic, that really um, um, were quite unsettling. So, you know, what I hope but don't necessarily expect from uh, 2023 is that, you know, some slow return to normalcy, that we get inflation back under control We'll have to see what happens in Ukraine. That war is going to grind on and it could get, you know, we're, we're all sort of sitting on a on a precipice there that it could get very uh, hot and nasty in a hurry. Uh, so that's going to overhang all of our activities, including on the economic front. That's the kind of uncertainty that markets uh, eat. So that's going to be hanging over our heads uh, the whole year. Um but those two things are, you know, those are the biggest sources of uncertainty in terms of, of, of the economy uh, uh, and, and certainly were the things that really throw us, threw us off track in the last 12 months. And I'm hoping that there'll be a, some return to stability on both those fronts in the current year. Andrew, thank you for your time and insights today. My pleasure. Andrew Coyne is a columnist with The Globe and Mail. 
Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, February 7th, a luncheon at the Toronto headquarters on global investment trends for 2023 with IMCO, McKinsey and Company, and Omers. On the 9th, a roundtable luncheon with David L. Cohen, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada. And February 13th, a patron circle dinner with Victor Dodig, the President and CEO of CIBC. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.